Today I'm chatting with Leslie Riley, who was a former captain in the US Army. Leslie used to fly helicopters, specifically Chinooks, the giant helicopters you'd see on TV sometimes, the ones with the two sets of rotors. Those things shift huge amounts of logistical equipment all around the world. And I was curious about how being a former officer, a graduate of the US Military Academy at West Point, a leader in the strictly military sense, has helped Leslie to grow her leadership training business. Leslie's brand is Lead Like a Girl, great name, and she specializes in delivering workshops on leadership through everyday experiences and stories. And as you can imagine, with Leslie's career to date in the Army, in the media as a TV producer, and then as a director of sales and marketing, Leslie has more than a few stories to tell. This is episode 115 of the Training Business Podcast. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark. It's my pleasure to welcome you back to another episode of the Training Business Podcast. And this is the show for freelance trainers, for training business owners, for training consultants just like you and me all around the world. And if it's your pleasure and privilege to do what I do, which is to help people to be the best they can be through our workshops, through our training, our coaching, our facilitation, then I'd like to think that this is the show for you. And for that reason, every Thursday, there's an episode of the podcast bringing you topics and of course, guests who can help you with your training business journey. The goal of the show, of every episode of the show, is simple. It's to help you to start to grow and to scale a profitable training business wherever you are on that journey. Today's guest is Leslie Riley, who's a former US Army captain. I mentioned this before the music. Leslie used to fly helicopters. And this experience of leadership at the front line got her thinking about how she could bring those lessons to bear in her current career as a trainer, a facilitator, and of course, as a coach. So we're going to find out what Leslie offers in her training business, how she wins new business, and what exactly she offers her clients. Leslie, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, glad to be here. So you're currently in Las Vegas in Nevada. What's it like training there right now in the current circumstances? Uh, well, it's, I mean, definitely different than my life was. I picked no this spot in Las Vegas because it was so close to an airport. Um, I have not been to an airport since March. So uh, it's, it's all virtual right now. And it's actually going way better than I could have imagined. So your brand is um, Full Circle Inspiration. What's the, what's the, the story behind that name and, and whom do you serve? Um, so it's a funny question. I feel like I picked the name so early um, as a new business and it felt like so much pressure but it's actually still accurate. Um, I had basically my main skill is facilitation. And uh, the root word of facilitation is facial. The Latin facial means to make easy. So what I try and do is make conversations easy for people. So meetings or events, or even sometimes coaching uh, partners that are not getting along, um, business partners, uh, trying to make those conversations that they need to have a little bit easier through structure and um, maybe some ground rules or just the way I listen. And I picked the name Full Circle Inspiration because 
the very first um, facilitation teacher that I had used a lot of really fun techniques, including putting toys and pipe cleaners on the table to keep people imaginative and creative. And so to me, that felt like a full circle moment. Like I was back in school and I was getting that creativity and enthusiasm that I felt when I was younger. So I wanted to bring those that kind of full circle remembering because I think so many of us get really rigid and serious when we turn professional. So I wanted to bring some of those early happier moments back to the facilitation that I do. So right now your clients include, looking at your list here, uh, it's quite substantial. Um, you work with companies like Adobe, um, National Association of Home Builders, the United Way, uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, uh, Chrysler, Fidelity, Disney, uh, the World Bank. How do you get clients like that? Because they're quite big names. So it's a great question. And um, the answer is different now than it was when I first started. So I want to give you a little trajectory for people, no matter where they are on their journey. Um, when I first started, I, I got my own first client through speaking. So I gave a talk at a conference and someone said, we need what you're offering. And I didn't know I was offering anything. I had a full-time job, to be clear. <laughs> I was just speaking about these um, skills of facilitation and what they could offer for people. And so they hired me. And that's actually why I set up a business. Because I went to my boss. I'm like, can you, like, can I do this? And she's like, no, it's not really what we do. But if you want to take a day off and go do what they need, go ahead. So I did. And I set up my business because I wanted to be doing more of that in the future. And then as I started doing that, I circled back to the company where I had gotten my facilitation training and got some advanced training. And they said, hey, you're pretty good at this. Do you want to be a teacher for us of the material of how to facilitate? And I said, heck yeah. Like it scared me because I didn't think I was nearly as good as they were. But if they saw something in me, I was willing to take the chance. And I said yes and got certified in all their material. And that's how I got a lot of my other early clients. So like Disney, Fidelity, um, companies that I worked with, they were the ones that put me in front of them. And then I just kept nurturing the relationships with the people. And so as time went on, those people might leave the companies, but then they would bring me into the new place that they were. And so that's how I've gotten a lot of repeat clients that may be at different companies, but it's through nurturing the relationships with the people I meet whenever I'm inside an organization. So are you typically dealing with corporates or is much of your work local with small businesses, medium businesses? So the majority is still corporate, um, but I, ha I, I really try and respond to what people are asking for if I think I can serve them. I don't want to be all things to all people, but you know, maybe a year ago, a friend of mine recommended me to a local small business. It was six people and um, not something I'd really done before at that size, but totally within my skill set. And I was really excited to actually give back to a local business in that way. So I, you know, reduced my rates and I made it so that it was workable with them. Um, and I really, really enjoyed the work. So now I kind of, I look for is the personality of the organization or the team that's trying to hire me a fit and not the size. So whatever feels like I can help them and we can learn and grow together, those are the companies, no matter what size they are, that I tend to be drawn to. Now you just said um, you reduced your rates. Why did you feel the need to do that? For, there was two reasons. One was smaller businesses have smaller budgets. And I you know, wasn't working with a huge name organization. It was a local organization. The other thing was it actually saved me a lot of time not having to get on a plane, fly somewhere, do my thing, get on a plane and fly back. 
So the rate reduction was because I could take out literally two or three days of my time that I wasn't having to be away from my home. So that felt to me like what I was marking down was both to be more in their budget, but also in recognition of the fact it felt really good not to have to fly somewhere to do the work. Okay. Have you had corporate clients make that same argument to you? In other words, um, could you reduce your prices, please, Leslie, because you're not flying to see us anymore. Um, You're working from home. So could you take 10, 15, 20% off what you charge us? Has that happened at all? Um, That has not happened. um, But I have taken into account what I'm asking for rate wise, since we are virtual. So um, I've been just offering somewhere between the like small business rate and my corporate rate. I'm like, well, what do I really have to do like virtual? Um, And there is, although I do not have to travel, I do have to do a lot more um, virtual setup. So if I'm doing a facilitated session and we have to have breakout rooms, instead of saying, hey, go to a flip chart and write this on the top, well, they can't really do that. So I have to go in and get these like Google documents prepared and make sure the instructions are clear and, and do all of that. So um, so I, it's somewhere in between my, my small business rate and my corporate rate is what I'm charging for virtual right now. Okay, so if I've understood this correctly, you're delivering training, but there's more prep involved. You're charging for that in, in kind of in tandem with, with the del- reduced delivery rates. You're kind of, you're charging for prep more than you would have almost making up for that shortfall in delivery. Absolutely. And I'm trying to be realistic about what the prep is. When I charged for prep prior to the pandemic, prep included all of the you know conversations I had to have with sponsors or whoever the meeting organizers were ahead of time, the travel, like all of that. So now I've taken out the travel, but I've had to in, add in virtual setup. So it's probably like a half of a day of prep versus maybe a full day of prep if I included travel, something like that. So looking at your background briefly, you were a producer for a local TV news company uh, or franchise. You were an associate director for the CEB, Corporate Executive Board, which is now part of Gartner, I believe. Um, And then you got into facilitation and you've been there since. But right back at the beginning, you actually began in the U.S. Army um, as a captain flying helicopters what was that like and what did those lessons, what less, which lessons emerged from that to help you realize there's something that I have that actually I can bring to businesses? Were there kind of learnings or, or elements of, of that career that helped you to, uh, I would say, shape organizations and how you deliver training for them or coach them? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's such a great question. And I love reminiscing about those days because it was a fun job. So for anyone who's curious, I flew... Um, Chinook CH-47 helicopters, which are big cargo helicopters with two rotors on top. And they can lift, you know, a Humvee or two Humvees actually lashed together. And and they it was a great job. Uh, but I realized pretty early on that the part of the job I loved the most was the people. I loved the mentality, like work hard, play hard that aviators had. Um, I loved the way that people came together for a mission. I loved how critical they were after the mission, doing things, we called it after action reviews. So, hey, we just did this mission. What went well? What didn't? How do we get better next time? Which I think is one of the key lessons that I took into my work is that no matter how well a mission goes, there's always room for a critical eye to go, what could we have done better? Like, let's honor the things we did well, but we also want to say, like, how do we keep improving? Um, So I definitely brought that lesson forward. Um, I also was a platoon leader as my first job in the army. And 
those were like my people. So I would equate it to being like a manager of a team or, you know, you have a group that's like your, your subgroup, they're your people. And I remember wanting to reward them after field exercises. And there wasn't necessarily like, you couldn't just give everybody an award for doing a good job in the field. The commander might say, pick one of your you know top one or two guys and you can give them an award. But I wanted everyone to feel that they did something that mattered. And so even though the the company wouldn't give official awards, I sat down after every field exercise and prior to, people might remember this, prior to PowerPoint, there was a program called Harvard Graphics and it was horrible. Sorry, what's that called? Harvard? Harvard Graphics. Okay. And it was like a PowerPoint type format, but it was terrible. And I would get in there and I would make up these little fake certificates and give people funny awards. (laughs) Okay. Um, so like, for instance, one of our guys, uh, our tent caught fire, the, the women's tent, because there was several women in my platoon. And one of the guys came running in with a fire extinguisher wearing nothing but boxers that had hearts all over them. And so I gave him the, you know, the, the hottest fire extinguisher handler or something, you know, just some <laughs> funny thing about his heart right. boxers. And, and, and then I'd go to the dollar store and get some kind of trinket that would go with it. And I did that for every single person. And we made a big deal of it. And we, I, you know, treated them to pizza and it didn't cost me a lot of money, but it was a tremendous investment in letting them know that I saw them, that I noticed their hard work and that I cared. And so I feel like that created some kind of loyalty that other platoon leaders may or may not have had, um, you know, who, who didn't give those kind of, that kind of attention to their platoons. And so I, I thought about that. Everybody wants to feel special and seen. And so I try and bring that into the work that I do and in the way that I listen and, and facilitate. So those are probably two of my best lessons. So many people often describe themselves as leadership trainers. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what what uh, role in, in leadership have you formally held? But you have. I mean, you've been a captain. You've had responsibility for people's lives, not just their development. So in thinking of leadership skills transferred from the military, how have you brought those into the corporate training room? So the... The military, I think, is just good at making you realize that anybody is capable of any job. Like I got thrown into different roles and positions and that, you know, seeing me on day one of a job versus day 365 of a job was like night and day. But I, I know from my own experience that I can learn anything, you know, given the right tools and resources. And so I try and bring that mentality into my leadership training and, and make, you know, helping people look at where are we lacking in the resources? Where are we not supporting people that are underperforming? Like, what could we do to, to bridge the gap from where they are now to where we want them to be? So that's one thing that I think I, I bring in. And the other thing is the importance of communication. I mean, it, it's such a broad um, thing, but I think how we communicate is so, like, responsible for, for how our teams operate that I really kind of look at that piece of leadership very closely in all the teams that I work with. And so, you know, using diagnostic tools to help people understand what's your style versus someone else's style and where might that cause tension. And it doesn't make the tension go away, but it helps it, it helps normalize it to know that we all have different styles and we have to continuously work to manage that tension instead of letting it get the best of us. And that's the model. That's the disc tool, which you use, I believe in your training. Okay. 
primarily what I use because I, there's others out there and there's a lot of great tools. I prefer the disc because to me, it's so simple to see those four styles. And every time I do a disc session or I do that with a team, it cracks me up because as I just, what I do is I describe each, each style in like caricature. Like if you were all D, what would that look like? And if you were all I, what would that look like? And I go around the four styles and people laugh because they recognize themselves and they recognize the boss that they have tension with or the coworker that frustrates them. And they're like, oh, they're not crazy. They're just a different style. And it's just the smiles and like the sigh of relief that comes over people is rewarding. So for people listening to this who aren't clear what that is, DISC is effectively a behavioral assessment tool. Um, and I think it's based upon the work of the psychologist William Moulton Marston. And there are four personality traits which are measured or analyzed, and those are D for dominance, I for influence, S for steadiness, and C for conscientiousness. What is your take on on that as a tool when compared to other tools? Because there are people I speak to say, well, they swear by insights discovery, or others swear by a Belbin or Colby. Why why is DISC relevant to what you do for your clients? So I I actually think I misspoke earlier when I called it a diagnostic tool, and I. I I, when I was doing my training, I had a teacher that said, if you call it a diagnostic tool, people might get the sense that um, they're wrong if they're a certain style. And he, this teacher preferred calling it a dialoguing tool. And any tool can be that. Um, and so I, I don't want to talk anyone out of, if you're drawn to an assessment, take that one and use that one. There's a reason you're being pulled in that direction. And I think the reason that I was pulled in the direction of DISC is that the very first time I took it was pretty soon after I got out of the army. And my highest dimension was that C, which is correctness or conscientiousness. And it's very much about being diplomatic and following the rules. And so I believe that's who I was. I took the assessment several years later and I was that was my lowest dimension and my I, my influence was through the roof. And they're polar opposites on the model. And I got really curious about how could that happen or why did that happen? And so um, there's a lot of different versions of the disc out there that you can take, but one of them shows what your natural style is and what your adapted style is. So what I came to understand over time was that my natural style is more of that I, that influence. I like to tell stories and ask questions and, and be with people in that way. But the army had taught me that the correctness and following the rules was more important than that. And so I had actually adapted. And that's, I think, ultimately part of, I didn't understand it at the time, but why I got out of the army. And I told you in, earlier, like the thing I loved the most was the people. And that tends to be what influencers love. They want to talk about the people and how do we connect. And, and so understanding that people can be acting a certain way and knowing that it, it could be their natural style, but it could also be them adapting to the environment thinking they're doing the environment wants. Yeah. So let's just think about disc for a second. Um, when you're selling this to your clients, what do you do to convince them of the need to use an assessment tool like disc? And when they question it, what do you say to explain the merits of the disc tool in conjunction with the training that you're going to sell them as a package? So I actually haven't sold it in a long time because a lot of people are doing all these other tools. And so the question I usually ask them is, has your team ever done an assessment of any kind? 
And if they say yes, I ask them what it was. I try to understand that tool. And I, I use that as kind of a bridge to the conversations that we might need to have. Um, if they've never done an assessment tool, then I say, okay, I think you really might want to consider doing this for your team as a baseline to understand that everyone's different. Um, over the years, I've developed a way to quickly do a self-assessment in the moment by answering two questions. So even if an organization doesn't want to purchase an entire assessment, I come in, I do this quick version, and I tell them, I'm like, you know, it's 70 to 80% accurate from what I've seen. Some people are not self-aware enough to, to answer the questions correctly. Um, and it's funny because their teammates are like, dude, that's not you. Like, they, they point out when someone's like, no, I don't think so. Um, and so that is enough to kind of open up the conversation that I think needs to happen amongst the team. But what often happens is after they've had that taste of it, they're like, well, can we get the real assessment? Now can we do it? So I'm never afraid to give them what I think they need, this like, you know, quick version. If they really want the other one, they'll ask for it. And, and it's happened several times. Okay. So thinking of the clients that you have, you've obviously a considerable track record with businesses, some of whom I've mentioned. You've also been a speaker on TEDx. Has that helped you to attract specific clients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, one of the questions I always ask when someone finds me, if it's not a returning client is how did you hear about me? And oftentimes the TEDx is what they found. It's like, oh, I saw your TEDx and then I Googled you and I found your website and I think this is what our team needs. Um, and so that's how the conversation starts. So what was it like to to speak? And I should actually preface that by asking you how you got that gig. How did you get um, the, the opportunity and how were you accepted to speak at TEDx? So the... Um, TEDx is the, you know, smaller, more local events. And at the time I had a, a girl who was helping me in like a sales capacity. So she would search out places for me to speak or facilitate or potentially do training. And she's like, Hey, there's a local TEDx event happening in a couple of months. Do you want to apply? And I said, heck yes. And so we figured out the application process and this particular, it was a very short um, window. And I was visiting my best friend and so I, I didn't have any of my like normal background or my fancy outfits. I literally sent a video submission from my best friend's kitchen. I think I was wearing pajamas. <laughs> and I told a story that I was like, this is what I want to talk about. And so the story was compelling enough that they said, yes, we would like you to be one of our speakers. And I found out after the fact that TEDx is more inclined to accept submissions like that than the polished speaker submission. So it was just dumb luck that I didn't have time to put polish on it. Um, and so once I was accepted, I got assigned a speaking coach and she worked with me to get really clear on my IWS, which in TED language is idea worth spreading. And so once I was clear on that and the story, you know, the stories fell into place and I, I wrote kind of the script that I wanted to follow and she helped me tweak it. And it was the most memorized talk I've ever done because I'm more of a in the moment, tell the story that comes to me, I can feel it in my gut kind of person, but TED doesn't operate that way. And so I, I wanted I wanted badly enough to do their work, you know, do a TED talk that I followed their rules and it, it turned out great. So the, the coach that was assigned to you, this is something in the process. They, in accepting someone, mandate that you work with one of their coaches. So this coach was the co-head of the event. So there was two women that were running it. It was called um, 
TEDx Fremont Street. And it was, I believe it was, maybe it was Fremont Street women. I don't remember the exact, but it was all women at the event. So the co-founders kind of split the group in half. And the one that I was assigned actually is a speaking coach. That's just what she does when she's not co-founding TED events. So it was um, just great luck on my part. And since then, I've hired her many times. I've done her, you know, mastermind group and her programs because that, and again, this is such a, I think, so I'm not just saying this as a person who gives away stuff. Like I'll give people the cheap version of the disc just because I want them to have it. But this woman coached me for free and I have done multiple programs with her since because I saw her brilliance and what she gave me for free. And so I just want to echo that was my path with her. But then also it made me turn around and do that a lot with my clients. Like, let me just tell them what I think they need and give them good content. And they always, not always, often come back for more. Okay. So I presume, I'm just presuming here, but I presume that um, your military background was part of what you brought into the uh, event. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was, I would say it was the central theme of, um, it was taking the external journey of what I went through in the military and drawing it back to what was happening internally. And so the talk is called the inner journey to leadership. And it was just this whole thing of, I, I was trying to do what I thought, again, I was adapting to what I thought the military wanted. And towards the end of my time, about six months before I got out, I put in my official paperwork that said, okay, I'm actually leaving. Cause you have to do that about six months before you get out. And at that point I didn't, I felt like I didn't have to pretend anymore. Cause I knew since I was getting out, I'd probably get a very mediocre evaluation because they save the good evaluations for people that are staying. And so I just felt all this freedom to be myself. And I started doing things a little bit differently. And um, like a couple of examples, I, I turned my office into more of a sanctuary. Like I got, I put fresh flowers in there and I had some magazines on the desk and I had a little teapot and I, you know, people could come in and decompress and tell me what was going on. And I found that I ended up learning a lot more. People felt comfortable and they opened up in a way that they never had when I was being that hard edge more masculine military style leader. And I, I was like, Oh my God, this style of leadership actually works. And I never would have discovered that if I hadn't let down the barriers of being who I was supposed to be. And I use air quotes when I say that and really being who I actually am. Of course, having a uniform has to influence the dialogue. I mean, it's uh, there's a bit of a, a theory X organization in the sense that, uh, you know, it's, it's very much top driven down. I would imagine that, with corporate clients, it's more consultative. Whereas um, when you're in the military, you, you you follow the chain of command. You don't just resist what someone says. So it's a different style of leadership, but I'm curious as to how it's influenced and it sounds like it's helped. So you wove that story into TEDx. So since the talk, have you seen an effect on business? Has that actually led to measurable results? I mean, could you see an uplift following that talk, which translated into revenue and opportunities? I mean, I haven't had like, I haven't kept actual metrics, but I can think of at least two or three clients that found me through that TEDx talk. So, um, and I know like, I'll get these notes from people that are like, oh, we were doing, you know, learning programs at our organization and we used your talk as a, a discussion, you know, for one of our afternoon classes. And so that doesn't necessarily translate into business immediately. Um, but again, I, as a small business person, right? It's like, I don't need a ton of business to survive. But what I have to continually do is plant seeds that will I will harvest, you know, two, three, five years down the road. And I remember one time, 
somebody called me and said, Hey, can you come speak at this event? And I said, sure. How did you hear about me? And she said, well, I saw you speak at such and such event seven years ago. <laughs> seven years. Okay. A long time. So yeah, the, I think the TEDx was in like 2013, 2015. I can't remember. I think it was 2015 actually. And um, so now we're getting up into the five year mark. So who knows? It's, you know, it's gotten several thousands of views. So it, it, it's making the rounds and every once in a while, someone will say, this is how I found you. So it's, it's continuing to do work for me, which I appreciate. And I'm curious, when you bring this military experience to the fore, do you have people who say, well, I'm not going to hire you for that reason? Or are there, are there people who say, because you have a military background and I do too, for example, someone might say, yes, I've served in the Marine Corps, I've served uh, in, in the Navy. Do, do you get people coming to you because you are, that's your background? And have you probably people who say, well, I'm not enamored of, of the military and therefore I don't see you working with us for that reason. Um, how does that uh, play out? So I think mostly I have benefited from it. I don't, I can't think of a client that said, we don't want to work with you because of your military background. So let me, they, the way that I benefit from it is that it is a pretty strong network and people who have served are very proud of that. And so if someone wants to help a fellow military member, you know, get ahead or like, all things equal. If someone's looking in their military, they're like, I'm going to give this to the military person. So I do feel like, um, that there has been moments where they're like, I appreciate that about you. I'm glad that you served. Um, on the flip side, the clients that maybe wouldn't care about military background. Um, I, I don't necessarily bring it up. Like they can go to my website and they can see that in my bio, but a lot of my work is purely comes from word of mouth. And what I find about word of mouth is that people are talking about their personal experience and what they liked about it. And what translates from that is my, the energy that I bring to my work, that I listen, that I'm enthusiastic, that I can bring some silliness to some hard topics. Um, and so my energy is what they talk about, not my background. Mm, okay. So where you are right now and where you hope to be in a few years' time, are they different? Have you a particular vision to grow the business or are you happy to, to remain uh, with just you in the business as a freelancer or are they working with your own direct clients? What's your plan for the next few years? Yeah, it's such a good question. I feel like all pl like I'll plan. I mean, to be honest, I haven't had a plan for a while because I had a daughter three years ago. And so I'm just now starting to get back to that feeling of like, oh, I'm a normal person who can work almost a nine to five day um, if I want to. And um, so I any plans that I had to grow the business actually got curtailed when I decided to have my daughter. Um, so that kind of went on hold. Now I feel like any plans that I would have had completely got shattered in March when the world shut down. And I, I will say that the work that I have done since March is nothing that I would have done before the pandemic. Everything's virtual. I have one or two main clients that I'm doing deeper, longer lasting work with, where before my clients were people that I would see for a half a day workshop or a five day boot camp training experience. And then I was done. And so I'm really enjoying having like a deeper connection and a longer experience with a team. So I think what I'd like to see over the next couple of years as the world kind of gets back to having live events and traveling is more of a hybrid where I actually have one or two teams that I work with continuously um, virtually and then those live events that I pepper in, you know, every now and then a couple of months or a quarter or however I feel like the right frequency is for my life. And um, 
Would I be open to growing the business? Potentially, but I'm more concerned about having the life I want than the business I want. And right now, the level of work that I have gives me such a happy life that I don't want to grow just for growth's sake. Okay, good point. Yeah. So if we said a year from now, you're doing X, what would that X be? Is it more leadership training or is it uh, branching out into something else? Well, the work that I'm really enjoying at the moment is drawing on my facilitation expertise. So I train people to be facilitators. And sometimes I actually go in because people are like, I don't want to be trained to do this. I want you to just do the work. So I go in and I actually run the event and I facilitate it. And so what I'm doing right now is kind of almost being like a staff uh, consultant for how can we facilitate better? And so I get to do a little bit of training or give some information, but then on the tough ones that they're like, this is out of our depth, I come in and run them. So it's a nice hybrid of teaching, training, and then also doing the work. Um, and sometimes, you know, those were, it's challenging. They don't hand off the easy ones. So it keeps me, <laughs> That's true. you know, yeah. it keeps me on my toes for sure. And then you're also an agile certified professional. So ICP, how is that used by you in terms of your clients? Well, to be fair, I'm not certified in Agile anything. I am a faculty member or was a faculty member at the Agile Coaching Institute for about seven years. And that was uh, work that I was lucky enough to be invited to do by the co-founder, Lisa Adkins, because we were in a leadership program together. And she had brought coaching, professional coaching to the Agile world through her book, Coaching Agile Teams. And she said, I really feel like the agile world needs facilitation. Like we know what's, we we got rid of meetings. We call them ceremonies, but I don't think they're any better. Um, Now I think they're called events. So like the name keeps changing, but the, the actual thing themselves are not getting much better. Would you be willing to bring your facilitation expertise to, um, meet up with our agile expertise and create a course that was specifically for folks in the agile world? And I had trained several companies that worked in agile, um, to, you know, just the basic facilitation skills when I was a contractor for that company that I had started with several years ago. And I loved agile environments. Like they just felt good to me. And so when she, she, I don't even think she finished the sentence and I was like, I'm in, I'm in, what do you want? And so, um, I helped them create a course called the agile facilitator, uh, which then got partnered with her coaching agile teams course to also create an experience called the agile coach bootcamp. That was a five day experience. And that was the work that I, I did in the Agile world. And they married up beautifully. I qualified a number of years ago, I think about four four years ago-ish, um, as a uh, professional scrum master. So that means when I was working with tech teams, um, I'm using Agile principles. Is this is this the same kind of thing? Is Agile with tech teams or are you taking Agile and applying it to non-tech organizations? So the Agile Coaching Institute was kind of where that like for the, scrum master, product owner, um, you know, people in that realm that have to coach folks through maybe a transition from old school waterfall development or project management into this newer way of thinking as an agilist. And so we kind of, it was where the rubber meets the road is what I like to say. Um, Most of the people that were in our classes were at the scrum master product owner um, level, but we also would see some tech folks kind of coming in and saying, we want to see what you guys are talking about. We had leaders coming in that are saying, I'm trying to understand what my scrum masters are telling me. I don't get it. So we we had a good mix and that, that really kept the conversations very rich and grounded in reality. 
Okay, brilliant. Well, look, um, there, there's loads to to talk about. I'm, I'm conscious of time. Where can people find out more about you, Leslie? Um, I am on the interwebs, of course. My main website right now is Lead Like a Girl. <laughs> Great name, yeah. So uh, <laughs> that actually, I actually came up with that name when I was getting out of the army, and I realized all these years I've been leading like a guy because all my my examples were men. And when I broke the mold and just started doing things myself and it worked just as well, if not better, I'm like, there is nothing wrong with leading like a girl. And so that's how I came up with this kind of project, branded project, I would say. And so that's my website now, Lead Like a Girl. Um, you, I'm also Lead Like a Girl on Instagram and Twitter. And then, of course, like LinkedIn for professional stuff. I'm Leslie Riley on LinkedIn. And of course, your um, your TEDx talk is on there and you've got a couple of services, speaking facilitation and uh a p- the Penny Project, just before we go, what is the Penny Project? Um, the Penny Project is what happens when I'm left to my own devices and what emerges from my brain. Um, I was walking home from work when I was still a corporate, you know, had a nine to five corporate job and I found a $20 bill on the ground. This was in Washington, D.C. at the end of 2007. So it was right around the time the economy was just about to start getting weird And I found this $20 bill and I'm like, man, are we so unconscious about money that we're just tossing 20s and we don't even know it? And so, you know, I was a broke girl in the city. I took that 20 and ran to the closest pedicure shop. And while I was getting my toes painted, I thought, what would happen if I picked up all the money I found on the ground? Like, you know, really like pennies in the gutter and a quarter by a newsstand. Like what would happen if I did that and kept track of it? And so I started doing that and and people found out about it and then they would bring me their found money. And so over the course of, gosh, it's been, you know, over 10 years now, and we've collected about $5,000. And I would say it's money people won't miss, right? It's just a little bit here and there, but we donate it in small increments of a couple hundred dollars at a time to different organizations doing things in their communities. And then I even ended up writing a book about it, um, all the lessons that I learned from picking up those pennies. Wonderful. Uh, That's a fantastic story. That's the Penny Project website. And uh, that's, if I get the URL, it's pennyperspectives.com. That's right. Fantastic. Brilliant. I really enjoy that. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thanks for being my guest today. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. My thanks to Leslie for being our guest today. And of course, thanks to you for your time in tuning in to another episode of the Training Business Podcast. I know this for a fact. You have some fantastic ideas for episodes and guests So please keep those coming to me. You can email me directly. I reply to emails individually and personally. And my email address is mark at trainingbusiness.com. Please subscribe to the show. This will, of course, remind you of fresh episodes as they come out. And there is one every single Thursday on your podcast platform of choice, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and many, many more. But until next Thursday... When I look forward to your company again, please look after yourself. It's close to Christmas. We'll have some announcements soon before we wrap up the year. But until next Thursday, look after yourself. Take care. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.